Our second reading is from Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Um, well, good morning. Uh, it really is a gift to be with you all. Uh, I know you're spending this summer soaking in these early chapters of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And as Johnny said last, re- last week, one of the reasons you're doing this uh, is so that you might consider together Uh, Some of the most fundamental pressing questions of our time, questions about anthropology, what does it mean to be human, and authority, uh, on the basis of what do we believe what we believe, Uh, what shapes our worldview and our understanding of reality and meaning and purpose. And this morning, uh, I want to continue that conversation. You know, I I cannot say everything about the topic of anthropology, I'm not going to try, but I do just want to continue to be one more voice leading you deeper into that question and that discernment together to hear from the Lord, because these questions, they go deeply together, authority and anthropology, and they'll be woven in to what I say this morning. Uh, And so I don't often do this, but I want to start with a visual aid. Uh, Do you know what this is, what this looks like? This, not all of you can see it, uh, this is uh, what many would call a relic of the past. This is a paper map, a hard copy map. You know, driving here this morning, I've never been here before, uh, I wasn't about to be like, let me, let me fumble through the glove compartment, you know, and try to figure this out with my daughter. Uh, not many of us use these, especially unless you go on like remote camping uh, and hiking trails or something. But in case it's been a while, let me remind you uh, of the basic ways that these are used, okay? There's a scale on it that helps you know the different kind of dimensions and scale and size. More importantly, there's this thing called a compass rose, right? North, south, east, west. And through the compass rose, uh, it aligns you with this very important thing, an external reference point that we often call true north. Uh, That external reference point helps to situate you and yourself in the world. Uh, And it also helps guide you toward your destination or your your end goal. It's a standard that tells you where you are, shows you where you're going, tells you how to get there, right? Now, why am I telling you about maps? It's a great question. We don't use these. Why? Because now we have an app for this, right? We have a whole other way of doing this. We have these small, ubiquitous devices in our pockets, and now all you have to do at any time is just, boop, you press a button. It tells you exactly what's going on. Everything has changed in the app, because now what? You need no scale. Now you need no compass rose. 
and you need no external reference point of any kind, really, because the reference point has changed. The reference point is you. The reference point is me. And the whole system is kind of inverted. In my maps, I am actually at the center of everything. And it's from there, with myself as the reference point and standard, that I make sense of where I am, that I choose where I want to go and how to get there. And I don't adjust and situate myself in the world. I, I, I make it kind of adjust and situate itself around me. And now every analogy breaks down, you know, and I, I by no means intend to start carrying a paper map with me wherever I go. But in many ways, this transition and how we experience maps, it offers a decent parable or analogy for some of the larger shifts that have taken place in our cultural life together over the years, and even more in the way we imagine and understand some of the most fundamental questions about anthropology and authority. Questions like, who am I, and who gets to determine that? Where am I going, or who am I becoming, and who should determine that? You see, for much of history, when we think about what it means to be human and what it means to flourish What kind of purpose or goal are we living toward? There's generally been an external standard or external reference point of some kind that situates us and tells us who we are. That determines our trajectory or our goal and even the means toward that goal. We look outside of ourselves and receive it. And that standard served as a trusted guide. You know, in many ways it would offer both affirmation and critique of us where we currently are. It would give us a more robust picture of who we are, help us to know if we're moving in the right or wrong direction, and that we're not yet where we want to be. But now, uh, many would say they describe our moment, uh, and you've heard this in previous weeks, as one of expressive individualism, hyper-individualism, which is just a fancy way of describing the shift that I've been talking about, uh, that we're all being formed really to live under this tyrannical, never-ending, often anxiety-inducing weight of being the reference point and standard. Constructing our own identities and standards and moralities, a tailor-made vision of the good life just for ourselves. And to have our own selves and our thoughts and our feelings and definitions of the good life as the primary reference point for how we make sense of the world. And that's really stressful. And I share that as less of a critique of our culture but a reminder that that's the dominant story that our culture tells. Like all of us are being formed to think about and understand ourselves in this way. It's washing over us again and again and again, whether you want it to or not, the story of autonomy and individualism. And yet despite the many forms of progress and promise that that story entails, these shifts seem to be creating a steady rise in anxiety, in depression, and acute loneliness. I mean, in a recent Barna study uh, that had to do primarily with millennials and Gen Z, the data showed that 49% expressed deep anxiety regarding the future. Over three in 10 said they often feel sad or depressed, around 40%. And then 35% said they almost always feel lonely and isolated from others. Friends, all of that's connected to the challenging cultural moment we live in. And yet regardless of the time and place in which we live, uh, to be a Christian is to be called back again and again into a particular story that speaks to these questions and a story that we believe offers the path to true abundant life and flourishing. Not an easy life, but an abundant and full life. True humanity. And that's the invitation in coming back to the biblical story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to ask again what story we live in. To come back to a quote that you guys saw a few weeks ago from Alistair McIntyre, a philosopher, when he says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do or how am I to live? 
if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Essentially what he's saying is we only know what to do or how to act based on what story we are living in. So for example, if you were given a ring, somebody gave you a ring. You know, if you're given a ring and you know you're in the last episode of The Bachelor, you know that at that moment there's a proposal happening, you've got a big decision to make, there's good news. But if you are given a ring and you're in the dark internal space of Mount Doom, standing over a fiery abyss of lava and a great creature called Gollum is attacking you as you have a ring, you know you should probably destroy the ring and throw it into the abyss of fire below. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you get it. What you do is based on what story you're living in. And so what I want to do this morning as we consider this question, what does it mean to be human? I want to use this map imagery again to show that the scriptures offer us this set of like initial coordinates. They offer us an explanation of what it means to become lost. And they offer us a picture of what it means to be found or to come home, okay? So first, let's look at the initial coordinates. Look at Genesis 1. Again, the text will be, a part of the text will be on the screen. We get a glimpse into the origin story, this profound description of who you and I are as human beings. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. We are made in God's image. So what does this mean? So culturally, this phrase was likely somewhat familiar in the ancient Near East. Many scholars uh, par- see these parallels between the image of God in Genesis and images of kings in the ancient world. Since kings could not be everywhere at once, right? And travel was slow. There were no planes, no trains, automobiles. There was no social media. They would erect statues or images of themselves throughout their kingdom. And those images let you know, if you saw that image, you knew that that king's rule extended to that place. Another kind of image the ancient world uh, associated with the word image is idol. It's the same word in Hebrew. A physical object that represented the God in the temple. Idols, again, were not considered the God themselves. They were statues or images that let you know that that God was somehow present in some mysterious way in that place. And see, the role that these statues of kings or gods play then sheds light on what it means for us to understand that we are made in God's image. You see, humans are placed in God's world, in God's kingdom, his temple, as God's representatives, as reminders that God rules, as reminders that God is present. And this entails at least two things. At one level, it entails dignity. That's to say, being made in God's image is a marking of ineradicable dignity, value, and glory. Radical claim of this text is that all people, people on the lowest rungs of society, people who've been told that they don't matter, who have no voice, who are often unseen, or even who lack the capacity to succeed in any way, shape, or form in the ways that we've built our world, have an ineradicable dignity and glory that cannot be taken away because they are made in the image of a triune God of love. And Genesis is saying, kings are not the image of God. Idols are not the image of God. Human beings, all of them, represent God and the world. You are image of God. You are royalty. And I first heard uh, an Old Testament scholar, Richard Pratt, teach on this. He was at a conference I was at in in college. And he he told us, he, he actually told us, he said, I want you to look at your neighbor right now. I want you to do this. And I want you just to say, good morning, your majesty. Good morning, your majesty. Do it. And obviously he's being, he's being silly, but he was saying, do you realize that according to the scriptures, you are sitting beside royalty and looking at royalty all the time because you're looking at image bearers of God. That is who you are. 
That's why Psalm 8 says that God has crowned us with glory. We're the crown of his creation. Can you believe it? You can imagine how revolutionary that was to the Israelites in their story. Imagine them as a newly redeemed and liberated Exodus people, redeemed from slavery. Years of being told that they do not matter that they are the scum of the earth, that they are the lowest rung of the social ladder. Years of that in gathering around Mount Sinai and hearing this radical word proclaimed again, you are made in God's image. You are made in God's image. That's the truest thing about anyone and everyone you see. Everyone you see is an image of God. That's the foundation upon which so much of our understanding of humanity, of human rights, of justice rests. And friends, yes, the church has been really selective in its application of that throughout history. And we have some cultural baggage because of that, and that's very real. And yet there are some incredible resources. There's a recent book called Dominion by Tom Holland. There's a book called The Atheist Delusions by a guy named David Bentley Hart. And what they do is they tell this honest telling of the church and the church's role in history, but they also are unashamedly honest about the reality that every ounce of dignity Every ounce of justice and equality that we kind of see people standing on in the world we live in came from theological reflection on this right here, on this right here. And even the earliest arguments made against slavery in the fourth century were made by a guy named Gregory of Nyssa, who argued based on the image of God that you cannot sell a human being. And if you look and read any of the literature of the civil rights movement, at the heart of almost everything MLK would say, the imago Dei was always undergirding it, whether he's talking about the oppressed or even his enemies. It cannot be eradicated. And so friends, this means that we are called by God to see his image in everyone, especially the vulnerable and overlooked, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the sojourner, because God himself is voice of the voiceless, father to the fatherless, defender of widows. And friends, especially this weekend, we remember that God invites us to see the sanctity of all life. The sanctity of all life, yes, in the womb, but it does not stop there. We are comprehensively pro-life. It means that advocacy and sacrificial care for life does not end with the birth of a child. It is extended with great effort and care so that every human being, as they navigate the harshness of life in this world, has the care and support they need that they might be a flourishing human. And we as the church get to take on that mantle. And that is part of our calling. And friends, in a world where we are pushed and pulled to have so many either or applications of this truth, we're to remember what author, lawyer, and activist Brian Stevenson says that each of us is always more than the worst thing we've ever done. And that's because we bear the image of God. As C.S. Lewis would say, there are no mere mortals. We are all made in God's image. So it entails dignity. It also entails dominion. That's to say the image of God, it is a calling. It's an invitation to live into a purpose. And we see this in the recurring refrain to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth. And in his book, uh, there's a book called The Liberating Image by a guy named Richard Middleton, a theologian. He says the image of God describes the royal office or calling of human beings as God's representatives and agents in the world. Image of God means that humans have been given power to share in God's rule, to embody his rule and reign in administration of earth's resources and creatures. We actually are intended, you are intended 
to share in the reign of God in the world, in all of our little spheres, to embody and participate in the reign of God. That was Adam's calling as the first human to serve as a priest who represents and embodies God's character in the world. The same calling to Israel, this fledgling group of newly liberated slaves, they are invited to be a kingdom of priests. And then Peter picks up on that as well. The church, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. We are called to represent the rule and reign of God in the world. According to the story of the scriptures, these are our original coordinates, made in the image of God, great dignity and dominion. And yet, of course, we know that's not the way things, uh, that's not the way things are, right? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. <clears throat> Somehow the coordinates have gotten lost and we've gotten lost. And we've got to be careful to know that it doesn't mean the image of God has been lost. Francis Schaeffer uh, had a great illustration of this. He would say he would wander uh, Europe in his travels sometimes, and he would see these old abandoned castles, these castles that were no longer in use, but they still retained this like, beautiful glory even though they were decaying, and he called them glorious ruins. And he said, in many ways, that's kind of, <clears throat> that's kind of a picture uh, of what it means to be a human or a fallen human. <clears throat> we are glorious ruins. And so the question is, is how did we get lost? <clears throat> Excuse me. And what does it mean to be lost? And that's why we need to look at Genesis 3. See, Genesis 3 sheds so much light on Genesis 1 and 2 and what it means to be made in the image of God. You see, the scene has been set. Our understanding and anthropology is filled out. We are made in God's image. We bear dignity and dominion. We live under God's authority like the rest of creation. We are made to respond to God's word and live according to it. And then we read in Genesis 3. Some of this is going to be on the screen behind me. We read now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, I know you, you guys will do a much deeper dive on this later in this series, but in this text, we see that one of the ways we are to understand Genesis 3 is that it is an attack on the image of God. It is a, a defacing of the image of God, and I want you to see this. Notice the serpent, the evil one, he begins by challenging the authority question. Did God really say? He's going right after God's word, right after God's authority, and it's no surprise that the enemy or the devil throughout the scriptures is called the deceiver in the New Testament. And from there, he moves on to challenge their actual identity as image bearers of God. Verse four, no, 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 nothing will happen. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and then you'll be like God. And we're thinking, wait a minute. I thought they were already like God. I thought they were already told they were made in God's image. More so than any other creature in all of creation, do you see this? The serpent's role as an accuser, undermining our very identity, the fundamental part of who we really are, causing us to question that something's missing, something's off with me. And friends, they buy into the lie, and there is so much here, but what I want us to see, the essence of the lie 
is that we can be our own authority. We can usurp God's role in determining good and evil, and that in doing so, we can become autonomous, no longer dependent on God, and when we buy into that lie, friends, what happens is everything is inverted. Instead of us recognizing that we are made in God's image, we begin to make God in our image. We demand that God be who we want him to be. And all along the way, we, we enter into this fundamental identity crisis. We no longer know who we are. And that reverberates throughout scripture, throughout history, right up to this moment in our own lives in all kinds of ways. Who am I? What am I? What does it mean for me to be human, to bear God's image? And it eventually leads them to not only run and hide from God, to become afraid, to become afraid of the very one who loved them into existence, the one in and with whom they have life. And these two lies of the serpent are still some of the greatest barriers to life with God right now in our lives and our world right now. Did God really say? I mean, how many forms of that question, how many variations of it do we hear all the time? Did God really say? Is that really what God says about that? Are we sure we can trust God? And then this, this other reverberating, then you'll be like God. We don't need God. He's holding out on us in some way. And this hiding and running from God, this sense of no longer knowing who to trust and who we are and is, is what it means to be lost. It's what Christians have meant by that phrase throughout many, many years. Uh, have you ever been lost? Just asking you. Do you remember that feeling? I mean, it, it's so painful and overwhelming and anxiety-inducing, right? I mean, I still remember the first time I got lost and I was like five. Probably a core memory or you need to go to counseling about it, right? I mean, it's like, I remember I was in a grocery store and I remember walking around the aisles. I look up and up, oh, I don't see my mom. Panic. And then you're in that mode of like, I don't know where I am. I know that I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Who can I trust to get me there? You know, my little five-year-old brain saw this woman who looked trustworthy for some reason and she got me to my mom. But you know that feeling. And what I want you to recognize is that so many people in this world Beneath all the clamoring and all the yelling and all the fighting, that is like reverberating at the core of their being, this panic-filled feeling of, I don't know where I am, and I want to find some sense of home. Is there anybody I can trust to help me get there? Friends, our neighbors are screaming that in some way, shape, or form, and sometimes we are too. It's a vulnerable question. <clears throat> And it leads us to this, last, uh, to this last point I want to make, which is how we're found or how we get home. See, as Genesis 3 progresses, Adam and Eve are hiding, and God moves toward them. He asks, where are you? Where are you? And one author says it like this. He says, where are you might be the best three-word summary of the Bible in the Bible. Because that question is not about information. God knows exactly where they are. That is a question of invitation, he is inviting them to come home and even more friends, he is coming to find them. You see, so many of the stories Jesus tells are like that, right? I mean, think of Luke 15, just three in a, three in a row about God's intention to come and find that which is lost in every time. He says, there is more joy in heaven over one, over one who repents than over 99 righteous. And all of this comes to a point in Jesus who is God's ultimate answer to his own question of where are you? Where are you? I am coming to you. I am coming to meet you where you are to bring you home. The New Testament screams this in Jesus Christ. 
I mean, one of the main portraits of the New, the New Testament paints of Jesus is that he is the ultimate image bearer of God. Jesus fully reflects God's image. He is the true representative of God and his creation. And that means that no one embodies more fully what it means to truly be human than Jesus Christ. Everything that God has to say, everything that God has to say is summed up in Jesus. And everything God has to say about what it means to be a human being is summed up in Jesus. That's why we read on the screen behind me in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the second Adam, the truer and greater representative of God. He's the true image of God. And in Jesus, friends, we see the authority and the anthropology come together in this mysterious and beautiful way. Jesus, the authoritative word of God, takes on human flesh and becomes a man. In other words, in Jesus, God comes to us with a new external reference point when we're lost. He's the new reference point. He is the true north, the image of the invisible God in all the questions we have about who we are, who we are becoming, who we can trust as an authority in our life. They find their resolution in Jesus. And friends, that doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with questions still. But it does mean that all of our questions, which yes, they involve our intellect and our head, they involve our heart, they're all fundamentally relational questions because they are dealing with a relational God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. At the heart of the Christian faith is an invitation to come home, to repent, to turn around and come home and be united with Jesus and him, in him to be restored and have our identity, that dignity given back to us, restored in us. Children of God, John 1 tells us, he gives us the right to become children of God, to have our purpose and calling restored, which is to be conformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. There is no greater purpose for which you can live than to become Christ-like. And he went to hell and back for you that he might bring you home. He's trustworthy. And so what does this mean for us? Just a few points of application as we move toward a close. Uh, Jesus first asked this question uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, in John 1, I love this. This is one of the first questions he asks when he comes on the scene. He looks at his followers. He says, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What do you long for? And I want you to consider your own life right now amid all the freedom you have, all the autonomy you have, all the scripts that we're invited to live into, all the Instagram stories that give us a perfect picture of the good life that we're just on the verge of having, all the promises we're offered about what will give us this unique or unshakable identity and uniqueness and security. Some of us this morning, we come into this room and this space tasting the emptiness of all of that. The emptiness of trying to be our own authority. We feel exhausted by this kind of invitation to continually prove ourselves and prove that we're worthy, that we're enough. What would it mean to like drop all of that off your shoulders and come and keep company with Jesus and hear his calling that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my authority, my teaching upon you. Be beside me in that and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Friends, one of the invitations in this text is to come and, and be apprenticed to Jesus and relearn what it means to be human 
and who you actually are as an image bearer of God and child of God. Second, some of us here, uh, we hear all this talk about value, dignity, and the image of God, and we could not feel farther from that this morning. Maybe you've had a bad week. Maybe you've had a bad morning, bad ride here. Maybe you are mired in shame for some reason that you don't want to talk about, and you hear all the voices of Genesis 3 of the accuser in your head. What would it mean to let Jesus have the ultimate word on who you really are? And friends, we need each other for this. A friend of mine was recently traveling, and he found himself in an airport sitting next to a tiny nun uh, in just gentle Eastern European accent. She was on the phone, and he couldn't help. It was a quiet airport overhearing what she was saying. Admittedly, he was eavesdropping. And she was engaged in this long but kind of hushed phone conversation with someone that he realized was in a deep tension uh, of doubt and self-loathing. And he found it so fascinating to listen to her. This, this man she was speaking to was distressed, uh, essentially because Jesus had not made him feel loved or happy in following after him for a while. Maybe you resonate with that. And as the flight began to board, my friend heard her begin to bring the call to a close, and he heard her words to this man, and she said, I understand if you don't believe it right now. Do not think that you're the, fir- Do not think that you're the first person to feel this way. But listen to the voice of your father. You are his beloved child. And listen to the voice of your brothers and sisters. You belong to us. And that was the way she ended that call. And friends, I hear that and I think that is part of what it means to belong to the body. We can't live into this story without each other. And there are all kinds of voices seeking to shape our understanding of who we are and we need one another to reinforce once, like time and again, the reality of the Imago Dei in us. We need each other. The image of God is a corporate thing. And then finally, uh, this is an invitation to some of us for a restored purpose, like an awakening within us of the beauty of your calling in the world as a Christian. Whether you are at home with your children, whether you have the most glorious, amazing job that you love to tell people about, or whether you have a job where you are just scraping by to pay the bills, this is an invitation to recognize that God is inviting you to share in his presence and his work and his reign in the world at all times. And friends, part of the beauty and creativity of being a Christian is that we actually get to seek to discern what is God up to right now in this particular space that is my life? And what does it mean for me to participate in it right now? And to recognize that there is no truer, more abundant life than right there. And friends, that is why, that is one of the reasons being a Christian is exciting. Because God is never not present. He is never not working in your life. And what does it mean? How is he inviting you to engage him and participate with him in relationships, in your workplace, whatever it may be? He is there and he's calling to you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So let me close with this quote. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this. That we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. And I like this right here. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And friends, part of what it means to bear the image of God is to look to Jesus as our true north, 
the one into whose image we are being conformed from one degree of glory to the next and just watch the way that everywhere he went, he was always enhancing the image of God in every single person he came into contact with. And as he did that, God's image in him was shining all the brighter. That's part of the invitation to you and to me this morning to come home and be with our Father. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, uh, we have barely scratched the surface of the wonder and beauty of what it means to bear your image. And yet, Lord, uh, I know that your spirit is among us and that you are doing work, real work in each of our hearts, calling us toward deeper, truer, more abundant life with you. And Lord, I pray, would you make us receptive to you? And would you invite us deeper down the path of life with you, Jesus? We pray this in your name. Amen.